and welcome to the Imagineer Podcast, your unofficial guide to all things Disney. I'm your host, Matthew Krull, and you're listening to episode 81 of the Imagineer Podcast. In today's episode, I have the honor and pleasure of chatting with Dan Cockrell. Dan is the former vice president of Epcot and Disney's Hollywood Studios and the Magic Kingdom. He has an impressive 26-year history at Walt Disney World and a number of general manager and vice president positions. He started out with the company on the Walt Disney World College program in 1989. Soon after graduating, went on to a management training program at Disneyland Paris, then called Euro Disney, before making the journey back to Walt Disney World and climbing up the corporate ladder at Disney in a number of different ways. We have a really great discussion about Dan's history at the company, some of his philosophies and learnings about managing and leading at the Walt Disney Company and how you at home as a leader in your own career can take a lot of those lessons to heart. And we, of course, talk about Dan's new book, How's the Culture in Your Kingdom? At the end of the episode, I'll come back and tell you a little bit more about how you can connect with the Imagine your podcast on all your favorite social media channels and how you can help to inspire and create the future of this show. So grab some headphones, pull up your favorite armchair and enjoy this episode of the Imagineer podcast. So on a podcast before, I have taken the opportunity to interview a lot of individuals who helped to design the parks and haven't too often spoken with people who have helped to operate the parks, which is equally important to designing the most magical place on earth. And so I'm very happy to be joined by Dan Cockrell, who is the former vice president of Epcot, Disney's Hollywood Studios and the Magic Kingdom and has spent or had spent over uh, 25 years at Disney before retiring. So welcome to the show, Dan. Thanks for having me, Matt. And uh, yeah, I was, as we said earlier, I was impressed by your list of guests you've had. So I'm honored to be here. Thank you. It's it's an honor to have you here as well. The Cockerell family name is certainly one that I think a lot of Disney fans know really well. It's it's a name that I know certainly very well. And especially if you are, uh, you know, if, if, you, if you've studied Disney or if you know the, the leadership at Disney, it's, it's a name that pops up quite often. And I definitely want to talk about that because not only you, but also your dad, Lee Cockrell, you sort of have this uh, symbiotic career journey where you both built a career at Disney. I know your, your dad also came from a career before Disney as well. Um, can you talk a little bit about your, your dad's influence on your career or any ways he might have served as a role model for where you ultimately ended up? Yeah, sure. I was... Um an only child, and he worked for Marriott for many years. So I grew up in hospitality. Uh, that was, uh, as I tell people, at six years old, I knew how to order room service at hotels. <laughs> I, I, and when I got older, uh, we'd go to hotels sometimes, and I'd be like, Where, where's the fruit basket? He said, well, you know, you don't always get a fruit basket, Dan, if you're not, uh, you know, working there. <laughs> so I learned a lot about it. And just as I grew up, you know, I really enjoyed being around people, 
uh, I, you know, I, I realized I enjoyed serving. I loved helping people. And that's a great, hospitality is a great place to be if you like helping people. And growing up, uh, I worked, mowed lawns, worked in a toy store. Uh, I was waiting tables in college. So I was always working and learning. Uh, and I think it's, it's great for kids to work. They, they learn a ton about discipline and reliability and all the real world kind of things. And so uh, when I got older, I uh, ended up uh, going to Boston University and didn't, still didn't know what I wanted to do. I guess I should have either studied business or maybe hospitality. I don't know, but I studied political science because it just seemed like something interesting to do. And uh, every summer I worked, I worked in the college program at Disney. And then eventually when I graduated, that seemed like the place that I wanted to be. And uh, my parents, uh, they raised me much the way we're raising, my wife and I are raising our kids is we have no plans for you, except we want you to be happy. And we want you to pick the path where you're going to do the best you're going to do. And we have no pre preconceived notions of what business you should be in, what job you should have. Uh, and we just want to, we're going to push you to have options, but that's about it. And my parents were the same way. Uh, my dad was always really good at either giving me advice or saying, look, let me tell you what your options are and then letting me choose. And I think that's a great way to mentor. Uh, and I was really lucky to have someone like that, that was kind of opened it up and let kind of un revealed my, my options and what the pros and cons would be. And then let me, let me choose my path. Yeah, I think that's a really encouraging um, environment to grow up in. And my parents are very much the same way. Go after your, your, uh, your passion, whatever you're passionate about, as long as you're happy, as long as you're doing something that you love and, and being the best at it that you could possibly be. And same as you, I started doing jobs, uh, you know, in customer service when I was in high school. I worked at Dunkin' Donuts serving coffee my first job, just very, uh, you know, customer facing roles and learned a lot from those opportunities. And same thing, ended up doing the Disney College program in college. What was the Walt Disney World College program like when you did it? And what roles did you have at the time? Yeah, that summer, it was the summer uh, after my sophomore year at BU. And I came down and worked at the contemporary uh, front desk, contemporary wow. hotel front desk for the summer. And it was a three month program and uh, learned a ton there. Front desk of a hotel, you, uh, you get all kinds. You get, and it, we'd, I'd, I'd work the, the graveyard shift sometimes and all the conventioners come in late and they've been drinking and they got all kinds of issues and you ran into some really interesting situations, but it was great training on how to deal with the public. You have the technology you have to figure out and also your, you have the guest service and the problem solving. So it was a great learning experience. And as you know, they, they offer classes also. So I took some leadership right. classes, uh, public speaking, uh, marketing. And so that was a great add on along the way. So I got a little bit of exposure to that in the academic way. That's terrific. Yeah. I love those, uh, those Disney university courses. I took two, I think when I was on the, uh, the Disney college program as well. After you graduated, I know you ended up, um, I believe, parking cars at Epcot before making your jump over to Disneyland Paris or then Euro Disney. Um, I definitely want to focus on the Euro Disney component because I feel like it's really interesting to take this leap from you know, sort of living in the U.S. And, and having a degree in the U.S. and then jumping to a management training program with Disney, but in a totally different country. What was that experience like and how did that come about? It was uh, stressful. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was an incredible experience, but boy, talk about moving your cheese. Yeah, uh, I, uh, yeah I graduated and uh, just a couple weeks later, I was down back at Walt Disney World 
And uh, by this time, uh, two years earlier, my, uh, my dad had left Marriott and got a job as director of food and beverage for the resorts at uh, Euro Disney. So I went in, as always, he said, uh, during Christmas, my senior year, I was visiting him and my mom in Paris. And they said, well, what are you going to do when you graduate? I said, well, I don't know, but you know, I got a lot of time. He said, well, you got like three and a half months. And it's not that we don't want you to move in with us. We don't have room for you. So you got to figure <laughs> something out. And uh, I'd been playing rugby at BU. And I was really set on going to New Zealand and playing rugby for a year and, and traveling. And uh, my dad heard that. He said, That's, that sounds fun. He said, I got, a, I got another idea. Uh, how about Disney? How about opening Euro Disney? And how about getting a management training position? And then after that, you can go do whatever you want to do. And someday I will go to New Zealand, you know, that many years <laughs> later. Uh, but I, I took them up on that and um, interviewed and they said, uh, what do you want to do? I said, well, what do you have? They said, you should park cars. I said, great. I just want a job. So I went to Epcot and uh, parked cars for about six months. And there was a lot of former World Showcase cast members who are European who they brought back over to, to Florida to train with the idea that a lot of them would move up into leadership roles once the park opened in, in France. And so they understood the European culture and the Disney culture, which was important. So uh, I did that for six months. And then on January 1st, 92, moved over to France. That was about three months before the park opened. And uh, there wasn't a lot, I mean, there was a lot going on construction, but there wasn't a lot for the operators to do because there were no guests yet. And so right. it was me and one other guy were the two managers of parking and we had a boss and, uh, they put me, they put actually officially put me in charge of the, the kennel construction. So, you know, I didn't speak French and I can't read uh, architectural drawings. So they sent me out every day with the plans and I'd nod at the workers and they'd nod at me and somehow the kennel, kennel got built. So <laughs> and then uh, we opened the park in uh, April 12th, 92. And uh, I was supposed to stay for a year and a half. And like I said, culturally, it was just, you know, you're trying to learn a new language. You're trying to learn, uh, you know, being these really sort of high pressure situations. The park just opened and there'd be no one on some days and other days we'd have thousands of cars show up and it was just an incredible experience. But after about a year, like, I'm like, all right, I can hold my own now speaking French. I can, you know, immersion is incredible how much faster you can learn. And, uh, my, my now wife, uh, we were living together and she was from, she's from France and she'd worked at, at the French pavilion at Epcot and we met in Florida and we moved in together. And one day she said, Hey, your visa is going to expire in about five or six weeks. What's your plan? And I said, well, I've been thinking about that. I said, uh, if we get married, I, I can stay. And this seems to go, be going pretty well. And she said, all right. And so we had like a five week engagement. We got married and we stayed over there for five years Wow. and, and worked there for five years. And but just about every year I went to a new job. Um, I worked in parking and ticketing and guest relations and food and beverage and human resources. And I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew that getting multiple diverse experiences was going to help me long-term. And I still hold by that. You know, I ended up having 19 jobs with the company Yeah, and it made it really interesting. And it was all, I was always learning. And, uh, you know, there's, they talk about growth and fixed mindsets. And I think I have a growth mindset and I was always, I always wanted to know more, but you have to let go of your ego if you're going to do that because, if you're always learning, you're, you're always going to be a little bit behind. But the thing is, once you get that learning, you move on to the next thing and it allows you to have a lot more options later in your career and later in your life, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love that growth mindset too. And it's when you talk about all the careers and the positions you had at Disney, I, one of the things I know, of course, being a former cast member, I also have taken a couple of Disney Institute classes. So we talked a little bit about the leadership elements of, of, operating Disney and that, you know, Disney always wants to 
rotate leaders into different positions to to avoid complacency and to get a fresh perspective on on a different part of the company. But what's sort of admiring about your journey is you weren't just sort of rotating from one position to the next, but it felt like you were up this in this upward spiral as you were sort of rotating around the company, ultimately ending up in a VP position. How do you, especially for someone who's interested in climbing the ladder at their own company or at Disney, you know, what do you offer in terms of advice to make sure that someone continues on that growth journey, that upward journey through the company? Yeah, sure. It, it's funny. It doesn't always feel like an upward growth. It just feels <laughs> like you're just getting new experiences. But right. uh, what, I've, what I've found through my career is um, if, if you got to, uh, one thing you need to do is focus on today. I got to go in today and do a great job and don't lose. And you, you mentioned it, complacency. Don't lose your focus. Bring value every single day. Be known as someone who's adding value all the time. Uh, we used to have uh, conversations with the executive team at Disney about what, what, what's the definition of the, of the top performer. And it's, it's, you know, a lot of times it's hard to put your finger on it because there's so many things. There's all the uh, objective financial analysis. There's the relationships, problem solving, partnering, you know, there's a laundry list and someone, uh, Aaron Wallace, actually, she was the executive VP of operations and she defined it one day. She said, you know what, when I look at the top performers, they are people who are moving the organization forward. And I thought that was just a great definition. Uh, so that was a big piece of it. Come in, be reliable, have a great attitude, overcome barriers, and just keep learning it all the time. Now, that's not going to be enough, though, because you're gonna, you, you can get the reputation for that. And then there's another component called luck and timing. Right. And, uh, and that's just that's how it works. And a lot of people don't like to hear that. But what I tell people is I, I did a whole podcast on a concept of the short list um, and not being on the short list. And basically, it's if a position opens and they're looking to promote somebody, uh, either you're on the short list, which means you're really nothing you can do now except hope you have the right background, the right personality, the right profile for that job. And if you don't have it for that, eventually you'll get moved into another role because you're on the short list. And there's people who aren't on the short list. They're not even being considered for these roles. And a lot of them don't even know it because either they're not asking direct questions or they're not listening or they don't want to know. And so I always tell people, are you on the short list? And once you're on the short list, keep working hard, but you can't force it. You know, every time I went to a new job, it was because something else happened. When I, when I moved to my first VP role at Epcot, the whole reason I got that job was because my boss at the time had been moved, or the VP at Epcot had been moved into a project to work on the My Magic Plus uh, project. If that project had not been approved, he wouldn't have gone to do that, and I wouldn't have moved into that role. Uh, maybe I would have moved into a role at some other time, but once again, they're not, these are not always in your control. So I just tell people, go in every day, do the best you can, focus on the job you have and learn as much as you can from that job. And when you've learned what you think is going to be enough, move on to the next one. And over time, um, hopefully if it's a growth company and it's a place that really values people, you'll, the, the, you'll get there. You'll get there eventually. And if you don't, maybe it's time to leave and go to another company that maybe recognizes your talents or what you do. Sometimes maybe it's just not a right fit. You're in the wrong company. You're doing a great job in the wrong place. And you have to recognize that also. Yeah, that's great advice. I love the idea of also learning everything you possibly can around you. You mentioned that because I feel like it is a real Disney Disney value in addition to being a a great leader. Um, Because I actually, when I was a kid, 
I always wanted to work for Disney. I ended up writing a letter when I was a kid to Roy E. Disney. Um, he wrote a letter back. This is when I was 11 years old. And the letter I wrote to him was saying, how could I possibly work for Disney one day in the future? And he gave me that exact same advice. He said, you know, take these jobs. And well, he specifically said, take jobs in customer service, which I did. But then he also said, make sure to learn everything you possibly can from that role. Take it with you. And I love the idea of moving the company forward. Um, I know you've done a lot at Disney. Can you give an example of something that you brought to the table um, throughout your career that helped to move the company forward? Perhaps something that listeners might know. Yeah. So, boy, let me think about that. I think, um, you know, obviously there was um, lots of uh, projects we did. The Millennium Celebration at, at Epcot and uh, opened uh, Test Track. Um, and um, that, was a, that was a really great – I was an operations manager at the time. And boy, opening an attraction that doesn't work is really hard, especially when General Motors is a sponsor. Right. And they're saying, you know, people are saying this attraction runs like our cars. I'm like, I don't <laughs> think that's true. But, you know, so um, I think, um, you know, there's I mean, there's lots of different projects. I worked on the master planning for the uh, Star Wars and Galaxy's Edge and I did some of that. But I think the biggest thing probably that um, I'm, I'm, you know, this is kind of a tangent answer, I'd call it. Uh, people say, what are you kind of most proud of there? And for me, it was the daily interaction with the cast members, the employees, just being out. If, if, if I didn't have to go to one more meeting in my whole life and you could just walk around the park and just interact with guests and listen to, to employees, because I found over and over and over again that they have so much to offer. And uh, I think like a lot of companies, Disney does okay, but I don't think any company is great at it. Um, really listening to all your employees because they know exactly what needs to be fixed, exactly what's going to make improvements. And a lot of times we get so busy in the big project work or the shiny things that we don't pay attention to that. And so I think a lot of times, hopefully if you've had a great interaction with a employee at one of the parks I was at, hopefully it's because I helped contribute to building that culture there that enabled them to, to, to be able to do that. And that's what I get really passionate about. Um, I, I liked working on new projects, but that's not what got me up in the morning. It was the people side of it that I got excited about. Giving them a voice, making them feel respected, having them participate in such a big, cool place like Disney and, and knowing how important they were. That's what kind of energized me. I love that answer. And I always noticed when I was uh, a cast member there, all the leaders essentially operated the same way, whether they were a coordinator or an area manager or general manager, they all had that eye for looking at, you know, we, the leaders have to serve guests, but they also have to serve cast members who are also like internal guests. And what was amazing to me, and I, I don't really think I've had this experience anywhere else to this degree, from day one of training, uh, the whole idea of sort of being, you have, but you also have to be your own leader and take some initiative, um, go above and beyond for your guests. Um, how do you, as a leader, create that culture within a company, especially when there are, you know, there's, there's thousands of cast members around the world. How do you ensure that culture gets um, infused throughout the organization? Yeah, so... Uh, I wrote a lot about this topic in uh, my book because I was trying to define it and 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 kind of tell people what the roadmap was. And um, there's there's four big things. There's five big things I'll say. 
Uh, one is um, you got to hire the right people. You got to hire people who enjoy service. You have to hire people that have great attitudes. You have to hire people who take pride in what they do. That's the secret formula. In fact, if you don't do anything else, you just hire the right people all the time, uh, you're going to have a home run. Uh, the problem is there's usually not all the people that have that profile available because you have to hire a lot of people. Right. But we, we put a lot of time and effort into hiring and making sure we understand uh, people's attitudes about things. We're not as uh, focused on hiring for skill in most of our jobs because, as you know, you, get, you can get trained to, uh, to do any, a lot of jobs at Walt Disney World. Not all of them, but most of them. So we focus a lot on what your passion is and most above all what your attitude is. And so, that, so you're putting like-minded people together and that starts to build a culture. Um, similarly, uh, building relationships with people is a huge piece. People want to know that they, people, someone cares about them and someone is, uh, respects them and appreciates them. And so spending a lot of time role modeling that, you know, I'd block time in my calendar to go walk the park uh, eat in the cafeteria by myself with other employees and get to meet them. I had a confidential voicemail number. So I wanted to really send a strong message that I will listen to whoever wants to talk to me about whatever they want to talk about. I don't, I'm not going to be here to take care of every issue. We have a great leadership team, but the buck stops with me. And if you need to, if you need to bubble something up, I'd rather you come to me than, you know, your spouse or channel nine news or Facebook or whatever that else that looks like. <laughs> number three is uh, setting clear expectations. People have to know what the rules of engagement are. How do you treat each other? What's the, what, how, what are the, the, what's the guidelines behind how we operate? And that's not for everyone either. I mean, you know how tight that operation is and how everyone understands, you know, if you, you worked in attractions, just the hand signals to stop a vehicle and go, those are always the same because it comes down to safety. So it's crystal clear expectations of what the leader's role is and what the uh, frontline employee's role is. And then lastly is reward and recognition. You got to make sure you're reinforcing those behaviors, and we um, did. We're we're pretty we were pretty good at that at Disney, but it was always one of our lowest rated uh, questions on our employee survey. Is I I'm, I've been recognized for doing a good job because we just don't either take the time to do it or worrying about all the problem people, and we just kind of a lot of times I think we take for granted the higher performers, and that's very dangerous. You gotta you gotta stroke them and make sure they know they're appreciated because they'll give you 200% more if you do that. They got so much potential. So you hire the right people, you build relationships, so they feel comfortable, you make sure they know what they're supposed to be doing, and when they do it right, you reward and recognize them. And uh, number five is communication. You gotta communicate all the time. Um, I, as I got bigger and bigger jobs, uh, it was harder and harder for me to know everybody. You know, when I worked in a hotel, I knew most of the employees. But when I got to Magic Kingdom, you know, there's 12,000 employees. They're working 24 hours a day. I can't know everybody. So I have to come up with a great marketing plan. So they have to hear from me uh, uh, through audio, podcasting, videos, written, uh, all the things you do so they understand what, you know, they need to understand my point of view so they knew they were being supported. And when I did that, I'm role modeling that for the rest of the team. And the rest of the team starts to act that way because people role model um, based on you know, their, their parents or their boss or whoever else. And if you role model, it, uh, everyone starts to sort of fall in line with how things should be. So a long answer to a short question. No, it's a, it's a great answer. And it ties into your book, which I, I certainly am going to want to talk about a little bit more as well. And right there is a good plug for a reason to buy it. Um, you talk about the idea of, of you know, operating a park with 12,000 cast members. I feel like there's so much you can be doing in any given day as the VP of the Magic Kingdom. So what in an average day, if there was an average day, you know, what did your average day look like as the VP of a park like that? 
Yeah, it was, um, it's, it's probably one of the most challenging things because you have so much freedom to do whatever you want to do. <laughs> so you got to make sure you're focusing on the right things because you could be doing a bunch of stuff and getting it done, but it may not even matter. So you got to do this, the important things. So um, I, it, for me, um, and I'll come back, it, most of it fell into those four things I just talked to you about. I was constantly looking at my general managers and my senior leadership. Do we have the right people and the right jobs? Are we giving the right assignments to the right people, matching talent to task? Uh, was I pulling in the right uh, talent to help me run the park? You know, we had finance and industrial engineering and labor relations and all these partners who didn't report to me, but I needed their help to help, you know, run that park. So I would pull them in. Um, I was constantly building relationships with my direct reports, with my cast members, with my managers. Um, I would block time out to walk the park. You know, I realized if you don't block that time, people schedule meetings. So you got to take control of your calendar. And about uh, once a month, my assistant would block a whole afternoon, which was my meeting with myself. And it was just like, hey, go think today. Because uh, a lot of times we just, you know, we stack our calendars back to back meetings. And we never get a chance to think about stuff. Um, there's a, I'm a big fan of the Eisenhower matrix. And uh, if at home, if you want to Google that, it's, um, it's a four quadrant um, a tool. And it basically breaks uh, things down into important and non-important and urgent and not urgent. And so the, the two places I tried to spend my time, I tried to schedule time to spend time in the box that was um, not urgent and important. Those are things that if I don't do it today, everything's going to be fine. But if I don't start planning for it, I'm going to be in trouble in the future. So I got to be thinking about things today that are happening a year from now or five years from now, whether that's developing my team or personally, you know, saving for retirement. You know, those are things that are important, but not urgent until you get right. later in life. And if a lot of people put those things off because they think, you know, tomorrow will never come. You know, I remember being at Disney, I'm 24. I'm like, I got the rest of my life and I blinked and now I'm like 51. I'm like, what happened? <laughs> uh, you know, time flies. And then the, the other really important box, and this is where we spend most of our days, urgent, important things. People are calling us. There's a fire to put out. A client wants to talk to you right now. I need this by noon. Um, and what we do is I find we overschedule our time and then we get all frustrated because we're being interrupted all day. And what I realized is, you know what? The nature of most jobs is to deal with important, urgent things. So just don't schedule meetings back to back and be available to react to things. You don't know what you're going to have to react to, but you know you're going to have to react to something. So save that time. And uh, a lot of people think it's more productive just to, if I meet as many people as I can in a day, I'll be most productive. And I think you should limit that and just meet with the meetings that have to happen and then be ready to be able to respond to emergencies and other requests so you can support your, your team. That's a, that was a big one. Yeah, that's a great framework. And I love the idea of blocking out time. It's certainly a, a really critical tool to, to give yourself time in the day. Um, and those park walking around the park, I think is another great way. And Walt does Walt Disney did this himself as well, just to get a sense of what was happening and what needs to be changed. What could be better? What could be improved? It's a, it's a great way to, to go about that. Um, I specifically also want to talk about Epcot because I find that Epcot is a unique park in the sense that there's almost like four different versions of the park, depending on what time of year you go, um, because the festivals totally change the dynamic of that park. You know, now we have the Festival of the Arts, and back then there, there, we also still have the, you know, Flower and Garden Festival, Food and Wine Festival, Festival of the Holidays. Um, how does that change the dynamic of leading a park when you have this constant rotation of festivals that are happening? Yeah, so... 
I think one thing it does, it, um, it adds a lot of energy, I think, for the employees. Um, during you know, the holiday period and the festival times, everyone's on their game. It's busy. You have people that haven't worked there before, and they're, they're being brought in to be trained, and there's a sense of uh, excitement. And uh, it, it doesn't mean it's not challenging because you have a lot of temporary things up and you have to worry about a lot of, of things. And as, as long as what I found at Disney is we can do anything, just uh, assign the right resources to it. Uh, that's the biggest thing. Uh, it, sometimes we'd go into a project and say, well, we're just going to try to bootstrap this one. That's never a good idea at Disney. Like yeah. put the right resources. <laughs> and we use a term. Uh, the term was who's waking up every morning and thinking about X. And if someone wasn't working, waking up every morning thinking about X, someone was important, then we had a problem. If it was someone's side job or their secondary job, we were probably going to fail. So assign the people to the job. And uh, it was a sense of excitement. Uh, the more you do it, the better you get at it. You, you understand every year. We always, after every festival, after the Halloween parties and Christmas parties at Magic Kingdom, after all the festivals, we'd get in a room the following week and we'd brainstorm. All right, good job this year, guys. Let's list everything we're going to do to improve this next year. And you have to do it immediately. And we take notes. And sure enough, a few months later, when we started to plan and ramp up for the next that festival, a year goes by quick at Disney, we'd open that binder up and say, okay, remember last year, we said we're going to move that cart eight feet to the right because this was a pinch point over there. And we're going to move this show by half an hour because the uh, noise intrusion was over the other show. And you always were improving it. And you were never done. Every year, there was something to improve upon and something to change. And people said, how, how many times do we have to do this before you get it right? You said, you never, you're never going to get it right because there's always changing dynamics. There's always something happening. Um, so those were, those were challenging, but I think it was a, just, you know, and I think a lot of the industry took the, the, the lead from that is you want to create a sense of excitement for your guests, something to market, but, you're, but you can't build an e-ticket attraction every year either. So you right. need to have, it's a good business decision. We're going to create an event. We're going to create some energy for you to come, but we're not necessarily going to have to create, um, you know, spend hundreds of millions of dollars on an annual basis. So you always mix that with your big um, anchor attractions that would get people to come. And then the festivals, you could update those every year. So every year was different. Yeah, that's, it definitely adds a lot of energy and dynamic for sure. And that's a great way to think about it is sort of this attraction that get, brings people back, but is not going to break the bank every single year. Um, sort of on that topic, a little bit tangential, but you know, one of the topics that I find um, is something that comes up in, in my community a lot is the idea of change at the parks. Obviously the festivals do change every year, but it's essentially the same thing. But more lately, especially, there've been a lot of changes to attractions, including classic attractions that are at the parks. Um, I'm, I'm one that always has seen the value in, in change. It's something that I know Walt Disney himself was constantly tweaking and updating parks even right after Disneyland opened. Um, can you speak a little bit to the value of changing attractions? And did you ever come across a change in an attraction that was met with either a lot of resistance or that you felt was uh, challenging to navigate? Oh yeah. Every time we changed something. <laughs> so yeah, that was, uh, well, first of all, when we, we would deal with that, cause you're always dealing with what's the public relations, how are the guests going to react? Is it really improving it? Why are we doing it? What's the messaging? And that was a, uh, it was very complicated to figure all that out. But I always reminded everyone, I think it's cool to work in a place where so, so many people care about what we're doing. So let's, you know, let's take that. Right. Uh, but um, 
Yeah, the changes, and I think it's great you brought that up. Walt Disney, you know, I think somehow people think when the founder dies, everything's supposed to stop in, in time. <laughs> right. And, he, and, and I think he actually had a quote that said, you know, our parks are not museums. They're always going to be, they're organic. They're always going to be changing. And, uh, and that was absolutely right. And, uh, you know, you take, you make your best guess. You look at uh, how society's changing. Um, you look at what people's values are, what role models you want to have for younger people because they're more tuned in to that. You look at what the entertainment value is of things. Uh, sometimes, you know, when it's funny, uh, I, I know a big one was people love was the Adventures Club at Pleasure Island. Right. And that was just a great concept. You know, the actors were, would go, come in there and mix and mingle and tell you stories and there's entertainment and it was a great place. But when you looked at it, um, people weren't showing up. I mean, there wasn't a line out the door. There wasn't, you know, it, when it first opened, it was really popular, but it got to a point where not, so sometimes it's not till you close it that everyone says, well, we want to go. It's like, where have you been? Because you know? <laughs> you know, people don't vote with online, they vote with their dollars. They vote where they're going to go. That's and right. So, um, and so you take risks. And sometimes we made mistakes and sometimes we got it right. And sometimes it's just a matter of just wait until uh, people settle into what this new thing's going to be. But there's certainly an emotional connection. Um, and as you get older, you, you, you want to, you want, there's um, comfort in things well, the way things used to be. And, you know, when you go back home or you go to your first high school reunion and you get there, you're like, oh, this isn't high school anymore. Man, it's kind of <laughs> let down. And it's kind of like that with Disney. You want to go back and recreate that experience you had because it's bigger than life. Um, and it's hard to do that. And you get back there and you're like, this isn't how it was before. And a lot of people like said, don't change things because you're, you are messing with my memories, my family memories, my childhood memories, and those are mine. And by default, they're now, um, you're, you're, you're impacting that. So it was, uh, it's, a, it's a challenging thing to deal with, but you got, um, Bob Iger was famous for saying, you know, status quo is not a strategy. You can't just wait and just hope that everyone's going to continue to enjoy things because once again, um, kids today, the parents may say this is what things are, but kids, you know, they're the ones that are deciding where a lot and the moms where you're going on vacation and they need to be entertained also. So it's a dilemma. There's no right answer. You do the best you can and, and, and try to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I had a thought that just escaped me about that as well, but it's, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely a, uh, and maybe I'll come back to me, but it's, um, yeah, it is very difficult when something changes at the parks and there's always this, Oh, I remember what it was. Uh, people, your idea before there was no lines at the attractions. And I always tell people if they're like, I hope they never change this attraction. I say, well, the one thing you can do to ensure that doesn't happen is go in line and wait for it. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> you're right. telling them that this is something that's valuable. Um, you know, if you if you pass the country bear jamboree every time, but you don't want it to change, is is are you giving Disney the right incentive to keep it? Um yeah. and so, a, quick, yeah. a quick story about yeah. that that we also um had uh uh, dealt with it was um in um i'm, I'm having the same problem as you now no no but it's with the um you know you think about the princesses and even not even the theme parks but the movies you know a lot of younger mothers were wanted to raise their their girls to be strong and independent and that wasn't necessarily the storylines of a lot of the movies uh and back in the day there was always a prince charming to come save them it doesn't mean that was wrong but if, um, you know, a Disney has a role in creating stories uh, and the mothers, they control the vacation. They decide where the family's going. They decide how much money they're going to spend. And so you got to be talking to them. And if you don't have the right role models in some of your products, they'll go find other, other, other stories. 
Um, and so I think that's important. So there's a lagging um, and, and boy, talk about today, there's a, a lagging curve of things that need to be updated and changed. We're seeing that in fast forward today, you know, um, Splash Mountain, they just announced is going to go to the uh, Princess and the Frog. Right. Uh, years ago when I was the Magic Kingdom, we uh, took, uh, as we call a uh, red, you know, the, who's being auctioned off in the Pirates of the Caribbean. Right. And we just said, you know what, that may not be the right message today that we're auctioning off women, you know. And so there are messages, and I think Disney has a certain responsibility um, to, to respond to the public, uh, not, not just because of the bottom line, the dollar, but at the end of the day, we have to, we've, we've sort of made a promise that we're going to be good role models as a company. And uh, those aren't always real popular decisions. Yeah. And I say, you know, the lagging effect in change, there's also a lagging effect in, in guests. Um, response. And I almost find that there's like a five stages of grief that happens with change at Disney for especially the the most devoted fans and who go to the parks again and again. And it gets to the point where at first they're resistant. Many will love the change. I'm looking forward to a lot of the changes that are happening. Uh, but those who are resistant will first be resistant to it. Then they might not ride it for a while, then decide, you know, I'll check it out. And eventually, not only do they accept it, but they forget that it changed. <laughs> it right. once was something else completely. Um, so I always tell people to just reserve judgment until you experience it and just trust that Disney is going to do it right. And after a while, you're not even going to miss the old version. It's going to be so much better than you expected. Um, the other thing that comes up, and I'd love to get your take on this as well, is the idea of original, what I'll call park exclusive content or properties. I think a good example of that would be Figment was a character who was created specifically for Epcot versus, uh, you know, attractions getting property that incorporate, it comes from a movie or comes from a show or some other, uh, you know, media channel within Disney. And an example of that at Epcot is Maelstrom changing over to Frozen Ever After. I loved Maelstrom. I love Frozen Ever After. Um, can you make a case for either way, you know, whether there should be uh, attractions based on exclusive content that you can only find in the parks or that maybe inspires movies like Pirates of the Caribbean um, or taking existing properties and incorporating them into attractions at the yeah, it's a great it's a great point. No one's ever asked me that, but as I think about it, um, I think there's a there's a case for both. But when you think about you know IP or you think about these brands, if it's a really strong brand, you want to grow that to give people more of it. And I think that's a great example of pirates. You know, people really enjoyed the attraction, and then to be able to tie into that and say we're going to take that feel that that uh, that whole genre and that. Uh, well, you get on the attraction and create, you know, a whole movie around it and, and connect those two. And then you have the other side of it with, I think Haunted Mansion wasn't like Eddie Murphy back in the 80s. Yes. Right? Yeah. They're no. not all home runs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think there's some risk when you try to, you know, but it's, uh, it's certainly that's been a big business uh, strategy of Disney when we talk about synergy. Um, you know, when kids at home see Frozen, well, where can I go meet her? Well, we got a place for you. It's called Disney Parks. And uh, where can I go ride and go into that world? Uh, well, you know, let's think about that. And Maelstrom, that was, you know, that was a philosophical decision because, um, you know, I'd worked at Epcot for years. My wife worked there. The original vision of that is the authenticity, right? The authenticity of the cultures. And a lot of Americans will never get to go to those countries. But the kids and the, the adults will get to meet people from those countries, uh, eat the food, understand the culture, interact with them. 
And uh, a lot of the international cast can go back and say, you know, okay, we've met Americans and here's who they are. And um, that one was, you know, you could say, well, is it more commercialized? And once again, our, our guests will vote with the dollars and the look. And we knew that we needed an update there. We needed a refresh. We needed Epcot needed new things. And I, I don't, I'm pretty sure there's not many kids under 10 years old who had a problem with it. You know, <laughs> so that, that was a target. So here we are and, and we're here and you know, I like Maelstrom also, but I think once again, you got to cater to who's going to really benefit from it. And I think we saw it was going to be kids at Epcot because we really lacked a lot of offerings for them, especially in World Showcase. Yeah, absolutely. It was a, I remember that being a really pivotal decision and it was sort of this uh, turning point, I think. I, and I, I tell people that that was, in my opinion, the turning point for Epcot, um, you know, because then after that, it led to other changes at the park. We're now seeing, uh, you know, Red Meets Ratatouille Adventure opening up in the, in the France Pavilion. We see the Universe of Energy Pavilion being changed to Guardians of the Galaxy Cosmic Rewind. And there's a lot of future changes happening to Epcot. Um, and that's actually another thing I wanted to ask you about was your, um, you know, how you feel about a lot of the changes that are taking place at that park as someone who used to run the park. Yeah, well, Future World definitely needed something. Um, it was, it, the original idea was great, but the way it was designed, Future World was designed in a very, everything's very separated by choice, the pavilions, their little worlds. And what we find today is that's not, people don't like to be isolated. They want to um, come together and integrate. And so finding a way to make those all come together is difficult because the architecture is done and how undoing that architecture is really complicated. So, but future world needed it. It needed a, you know, I think world showcase is the, that's the heart and soul of that park. That's what works really well. And that's, what's going to continue to work. And sometimes I told or mentioned earlier, you know, sometimes it's luck and timing. Um, the thing that I think makes, Epcot worked so well was kind of a, I'm not going to say it was a mistake, but originally the World Showcase was designed to have a parade go around it every day. And that never really came to fruition. They did it for a while. And then during the millennium, they had a, you know, kind of a parade, right? But it never, it never really turned out that way. But then one day when someone said, well, what if we did festivals here? All of a sudden you have this incredible lighting that's already been installed and built. You have these huge wide walkways that caters. Now you can put carts out there. If they had designed it the way without a parade, we never would have been able to run these festivals. So a lot of times it's kind of, you got to figure out and use what you have. And um, uh, I, I think the, um, it's going to be interesting because, you know, um, Disney's reopening. And I know that a lot of the international cast uh, can't travel for a while. Yeah. So it's going to be interesting how, um, I think they're going to end up opening World Showcase and I assume they're going to get, you know, Americans or others. And that's going to be a whole new, a whole new thing um, of how you create that authenticity. But I think people understand it's an exceptional moment and would rather be in there than have it be closed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, along those lines, uh, I always tell people that safety is first at Disney, first and foremost. And I think there's this... Um, I'll say fear about Disney reopening um, with the idea that maybe it's not safe to go. Um, can you talk a little bit about the safety, um, the, that safety key at Disney? And um, I guess like, not whether you think Disney's safe to reopen or not, but sort of uh, your ideas of um, the lengths that Disney goes to in order to ensure that a park environment is safe for guests. Yeah, well, I'll speak to both of those things. I think the reopening here, they're in a really tough situation because um, 
you know, the economy of Florida counts on theme parks and tourism. Right. And uh, when they, you know, when they made the decision to announce to reopen, it looks like the curve was going the way it should be. And I don't think people realized for some reason it's all scientific, but if you stop quarantining, the rate will go back up again. And that happened. And so now they're in a, a, a position where the reopening uh, they're going to put everything in place and they're going to have, I think even have people sign off that says, you know, I realize the risks of, of going during this time. Right. So you can argue how to manage this. I think history will come out and, and really decide how you manage a pandemic like this. And everyone's going to question. And, and the next time this happens, I think there's going to be much clearer protocols. I think the way it's been handled is each state's on their own. And when that happens, you're going to get all kinds of different things like California's delaying and Florida's not. Right. And, uh, and so that'll be, um, I guarantee they're monitoring it every day. They're listening to guests. Guests know what's going on and they're going to decide whether they want to take that risk or not. So that's, um, we'll see what happens with that. I think generally to your point, um, you got to create a, a, a culture of safety. And it's one of those things where um, people don't tell you when they come to Walt Disney World, they enjoy it because it's safe. They may mention it. They just assume it is. That's just yeah. sort of a, a price of entry. I know I'm going to be safe there and we have a brand and we got to make sure that that's protected. And, um, it's, it's funny you mentioned this cause my, uh, my wife and I and our daughter are just finishing up a management one-on-one course. We're going to be uh, selling the universities and it's going to be based on my book and based on case studies from Disney. And one of them is on safety, <laughs> uh, big safety initiative that we had back in 2009 because we were seeing, we had some cast member deaths and we were seeing an increase in the OSHA rates, basically any accident that requires um, uh, first aid or more, uh, more than first aid. And uh, it's, um, you know, when you talk about Disney, there's lots of technology. You talk about um, uh, redundancies um, and some things, for example, that I think are really cool. Um, you know, we have all the gates now and all the attractions. And uh, so Big Thunder Mountain, for example, every train can only do so many rotations on that ride before it has to be pulled off to get its annual preventive maintenance. And we forecast how many times it's going to go and we know about when that's going to happen, but it's possible that, you know, in worst case scenario, you're halfway through a day at a park and the, the, the train is going to go past its 10,000th uh, rotation. Um, the, the system actually reads that train every time it comes in the station. And if it comes in the station and it's hit 10,000, the gates won't open. So it's redundant. So they won't even let you load it. So I think we're using a lot of technology and we're using a lot of, I'm not going to call it artificial intelligence, but we're using backups that will um, check human error or be able to put it. And uh, Jeff Volley, who's now the president of Walt Disney World, he used to be the executive vice president of engineering. Um, he talked about the Swiss cheese model and he said, you know, um, accidents are kind of like Swiss cheese. Swiss cheese is hard to see through, but if you, if you put it exactly the right angle, you can see through the other side. And so we are always trying to block the holes of the Swiss cheese to make sure we can do everything to keep people safe. And usually you can design a lot out, but then it comes to people's behaviors and their choices. And that's where it takes, it goes beyond technology and it becomes training people to pay attention, to make the right decisions, to wash their hands, you know, the things that technology isn't actually going to overcome. But uh, it's, a, it's an ongoing, every single day we talk about it because you can't take that for granted because people don't feel safe. Um, nothing else really matters. It doesn't matter how magical it is if you're not safe. And uh, there's a lot of thought that goes into that. And obviously as time has gone on, we've added more and more safety pieces with, you know, 9-11 and the pulse shooting and metal detectors 
in Disneyland Paris, they, uh, they x-ray all the bags going in the hotels and that's just the way the world's going and people need to know that they're going to be safe with their families. Yeah. I, I love the idea of it also being implied. It's not something someone will consciously say. That's why they love going to Disney, but it's, it's, they know that it is a safe place to go. Um, and great examples. So uh, I want to be you know, respectful of your time. So I'd love to hear a little bit about um, your new book, which I know you talked about a little bit that's coming out in August and I'll definitely plug for the listeners and then anywhere else that people can go to follow you on social media or to learn more about what you have going on right now. Yeah. So since this pandemic hit, you know, we were like everyone else, six months of uh, leadership workshops, keynote speeches, everything <laughs> gone. Yeah. And that growth mindset had to kick back in. And my wife and I said, well, we better get started. <laughs> Otherwise, we we're just going to sit here for a while. So we've done a bunch of stuff. So the, the book, uh, it's called How's the Culture in Your Kingdom? And it's, uh, it's broken into four sections, uh, leading yourself, leading your team, leading your organization, and leading change. And uh, every, every chapter starts with a story uh, from my career, my life. Uh, I talk about the topic, and, and every chapter ends with what I call Fast Track the Results, which is basically okay, you've heard about what this looks like. Now let me give you six or seven exact tactics you can start doing tomorrow. Um, because a lot of people, leadership is about action. It's not about what you believe. It's not about, a lot of people think, well, I talked about it, it's done. No, no, until you do something, it doesn't count. That's so right. I, uh, it's very, it's very um, I think, uh, objective in that sense. Um, and uh, it's, uh, they, the, the publisher said, who are you writing this book for? And of course, I said, well, I'm writing it for everyone. I want everyone to have a copy. I said, well, <laughs> you need to have an avatar. Who's in your mind you're writing this to? He said, a friend of mine wrote a book about marriage and he wrote it to his best man. Who are you writing this book to? And so I can't think of a, a specific person, but I can think of this is a mid-20s, early 30s manager who is now moving up in an organization, has moved on from being an individual contributor, now leading teams. And a lot of leaders really struggle with that. They're great at performing on their own, but um, getting their job done through people is another way to work. And it's a different um, it's a different approach and it's messy. And so I tried to address that to help out those leaders to really get some uh, best practices in place and structure. So um, that'll be available on um, um, Amazon or yeah, I know I'm, I'm encouraging a lot of people to go to their local bookstore, support their local bookstores. Uh, Barnes and Noble will have it and um, hopefully we'll have a lot in the local bookstores. Uh, and August 11th, that goes on sale. Um, I, uh, you can go to cockerelconsulting.com. My wife just rebuilt uh, dancockerel.com, which is still live, but we uh, rebuilt that website uh, and Cockerel Consulting now. And it has everything we do, uh, leadership workshops, uh, online courses. Uh, we're now, um, we just developed a webinar that we're going to do. We're doing on July 16th and August 21st, a paid webinar called um, um, A Walk in the Park. And it's going to be a, a virtual tour of the Magic Kingdom. Uh, based loosely on the principles of the book and also around stories and leadership stories that people probably haven't heard before. So um, we're offering that. But cockerelconsulting.com, it's all there. I'll be sure to plug all of that. I also fit in your temp target demographic for the book. So I'll definitely be buying that book. I'm looking forward to reading it. Um, but, uh, you know, as I mentioned before, Dan, it's, you know, as someone who's, who's studied the company and, and worked at the company, it's been a real pleasure getting to chat with you. So I really appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to sit down and chat with me about your stories about working at Disney today. Well, you know, it's just, I'm lucky to have worked in a place that taught me so much. And now, um, you know, I, I put this in the book. Uh, you spend your tw first 25 years learning, your next 25 doing, and hopefully the last 25 teaching. And so I hope now that I'm able to 
you know, share a lot of the great experiences I've had with the company and my life stories to help other people. And I really appreciate uh, being able to talk to your audience. Thanks for taking the time. Absolutely. that we close out episode 81 of the imagineer podcast i want to give a very special thank you once again to dan for coming onto the show and chatting with me about his career at the walt disney company because he certainly does have an impressive resume and list of accomplishments and roles that he has taken on throughout his career with Disney. And I definitely enjoyed chatting with him about some of the lessons and takeaways from that career at Disney, as well as some of his philosophies about how to cultivate an exceptional group of cast members, how to keep the park safe, and so much more. As Dan mentioned, he does have a new book coming out August 11th, How's the Culture in Your Kingdom? And I definitely recommend picking up a copy. I will certainly be doing the same. You can find a link to that book in Amazon by finding the link in the show notes of this podcast episode. But as Dan mentioned, it's also important, especially at a time like this, to support small business. So check out your local bookstore and see if the book is available there. You'll also find in the show notes direct links to Dan's website and social media pages, so be sure to follow him there. Of course, I want to turn the conversation over to you. I'd love to get some of your thoughts about some of the questions that were posed during this podcast episode, especially as it relates to changes at the Disney parks, as well as uh, the idea of whether there should be original content, original characters, or whether we should take characters from movies and place them into Disney attractions. It's always a a hot topic and big debate among Disney fans, but I've never posed it before on the podcast, so I figure it's something to ask of all of you. You can reach out to me and send me your answers, as always, in so many different ways. You can find Imagineer Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and LinkedIn at Imagineer Podcast. You can also find us on Twitter at Imagineer News, or you can send me an email at ImagineerPodcast at gmail.com. Of course, if you don't follow us on social media, be sure to hit that follow or like button so that you are the first to know when new pieces of content, new videos and photos are available on our social media pages. And I'd also encourage you to join our Facebook group, The Imagination, also called The Imagineer Podcast, Disney fan community, to converse not just with me, but with other members of The Imagineer Podcast community. If you don't already subscribe to the show, be sure to hit that subscribe or follow button, whether you're listening in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, or your favorite podcast app. Hitting subscribe or follow, of course, ensures that whenever a new podcast becomes available, you are the first to know and we'll have it waiting for you in your podcast app. And if you would like to take, let's say, 30 seconds, 60 seconds, one of the best things you could do for the show is to leave us a rating and a review in the Apple Podcast Store. We have almost 375, about 375 
five-star ratings in Apple Podcasts, maintaining a five-star rating in that community. And I'm so grateful and thankful to all of you who have taken some time to leave your thoughts about the show there. I certainly take all the feedback to heart and it encourages me to continue to pushing even harder to make this community a better place for all of you. So thanks as always to everyone who has gone ahead and rated and reviewed the show before. Of course, one of the best things you could do, though, for Imagineer Podcast is quite simply to share it out. Whether you share out this episode with Dan, your favorite episode of the show, the podcast as a whole, or any of our social media posts, whether you share it out in your own social media posts in a Facebook or Instagram story, if you talk about us on YouTube or TikTok, or if you just simply share the word with your Disney friends about Imagine Your Podcast, it does so much to help our loving community of Disney fans continue to grow. And I am so grateful to all of you who continue to share the word about Imagineer Podcast. And if you would like to take your love of Imagineer Podcast to the next level, definitely look into the Imagineer Society. Imagineer Society is available at patreon.com slash Imagineer Podcast. Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Essentially, you go to help to support the show financially to help us to pay for all of our show-related expenses because it does take quite a bit of money to keep the show going. Um, and in return, you get special perks and benefits in return. Things like early access to every podcast episode, access to an exclusive Facebook group just for Imagineer Society members. We do live Q&As about once a month. We do video chats as a small group about, again, once a month. We have bonus podcast episodes available and so much more. You can see all the perks and tiers that are available. Even starting at just a dollar a month, you get benefits in return. Again, that's at patreon.com slash imagineyourpodcast. I want to give a very special thank you to our newest Sorcerer VIP, Stephen W. Thank you so much for signing up for our Sorcerer tier of Imagine Your Society and certainly hope you have been enjoying those benefits so far. Of course, also check out our partners. First, take a look at the Kingdom Insider because Christy has so much to offer in terms of Disney news and information and she is always working incredibly hard. I often talk to her about it behind the scenes and she's always so busy. Um, creating content and chatting with Disney directly and trying to get you the most reliable, um, timely source of Disney news and information. She also has the opportunity to travel to Disney frequently, being someone who's a lot more local than I am, and uh, so you'll often find some incredible tips. Um, She's a lifelong Disney fan and historian and is a mom as well, so has some great information to share about traveling to Disney as a Disney fan or as a mom or as a parent, you know, a first time or a repeat guest to Walt Disney World, Disneyland, Disney Cruise Line, Adventures by Disney, Alani, all the Disney destinations around the world, and even how you can bring the magic of Disney into your own home. So check her out at thekingdominsider.com or at the Kingdom Insider on your favorite social media channel. And also check out our partner, Academy Travel. The next time you're ready to book your upcoming trip to Walt Disney World, Disneyland, Disney Cruise Line, Alani, Adventures by Disney, any Disney destination, definitely look into Academy Travel because they've been doing this for over 25 years. They are diamond earmarked. That is the highest level of distinction that Disney awards to travel agencies. They can help you to plan your next Disney vacation, not only free of charge to you, they can actually help you to save money on your next Disney vacation and offer an incredible level of service. So I really encourage you to check it out. 
You can learn more about that or request a free quote for your upcoming Disney trip and learn how you can save a little bit of money on your next Disney vacation. Easiest way to find that is go to imagineerpodcast.com, click on the travel dropdown, and those links will take you directly to free quote forms for uh, Walt Disney World, Disneyland, and all the other Disney destinations around the world. Again, it's a free quote, no obligation. And if you do decide to book with them, that's also at no extra cost to you. So definitely check it out. And you can also click on some of the links in the show notes below uh, to get a free quote form as well uh, to travel with Academy or to plan your next vacation with Academy Travel. As always, I want to encourage you now more than ever uh, to definitely go after your dreams. There's, you know, the world has changed, but when there's change, there's opportunity. And I see so much opportunity right now to go after your dreams, to think differently about what you want to do. If you're really doing what you love, Dan and I talked in the beginning about pursuing your passions and just giving it your heart and giving it your all. And uh, I certainly believe that's certainly worth going after and making a better life for yourself and even for those around you. Remember, as always, that inspiring quote from Horizons. If you can dream it, you can do it. Thank you so much for listening to the show, and we'll see you again in a future episode of the Imagineer Podcast. Go get him! <laughs> oh, oh, oh.